Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with presidential debate moderator Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude, a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. Today, we bicker about moderation and discuss the critical importance of moving our science away from thinking in terms of main effects and towards the conceptualization of the conditions under which an effect might hold. Along the way, we also discuss the carsophagus, Sisyphean tasks, the London Museum, pineapples, 9.8 meters per second squared, military helicopters, the MILF model, public service announcements, and Spinal Tap. We hope you enjoy today's episode. <clears throat> you are three minutes late. I am. I apologize. I am usually prompt. I was out in the driveway. Have I told you about the carsophagus, as my daughter now <laughs> calls it? <laughs> Without me even telling you anything about why I'm three minutes late or why it's mm-hmm. a carsophagus, give me a guess. <clears throat> Let's see. Knowing my linguistic roots as I do, I think you found a dead body in your car. (laughs) That was last year. Am I? Okay. All right. Okay. So you are very close. You are very close. Why I am three minutes late. I went out and I have a 16-year-old minivan. I have also commented that I have 16-year-old twin daughters. So notice those are correlated with one another. I Uh was opening all the doors and the windows because as best as I can guess, some rodent during the (laughs) pandemic when I'm not driving the car, it's parked outside, somehow Uh chewed its way into the car. Now I know this Uh because he temporarily made a home inside a Kleenex box. So Uh as I was doing this, Uh what are the CSI ones? They're like crime movies or something. So this is like... Honda Odyssey CSI. So I'm crawling around trying to figure out after I have figured out it's a crime scene. Uh But I found a little nest that Uh he had made in the Kleenex box. But the problem is, evidently, he was bright enough to get into my car, but he was not Uh bright enough to get out of my car. And he climbed somewhere into the system and passed on to a better place and Uh has been rotting in my car for like two months. Uh And I have torn the car down almost to Mm -hmm. the studs. I have taken all the seats out. I've pulled up the carpet. I've pulled the panels off. (laughs) I have a couple acres of land in North Carolina with fall leaves as it's a Uh Sisyphean task. Sisyphus? Sisyphean? Sisyphean? It's hard. It's a hard task (laughs) to clear leaves. So I have a really Uh powerful gas leaf blower. And I strapped Uh it on my back and climbed into the car and jammed the nozzle into the air vents, trying, I don't know what, somehow blow him out, I guess. (laughs) I picture Ghostbusters. Yeah, no, don't cross the streams. I mean, it's kind of that. Don't cross the streams. Why? It would be bad. I'm fuzzy on the whole good, bad thing. What do you mean bad? And then, of course, I started getting tunnel vision from breathing the carbon monoxide because I am uh-huh. in a van running a gas blower. But uh-huh. I rarely give up on things. I'm low on a hundred other 
things that might be skill sets for doing well either in life or in academia, I am really high on perseverance. Mm -hmm. I really am. There's very little I give up on, much to my detriment. And I have given up on finding the dead rodent. Uh I guess it's still a form of perseverance because I've decided to wait him out. (laughs) I figure, like, it works for mummies. Right? It's not like you walk in to the London Museum and I'm like, damn, that smells. I mean, these things resolve themselves. So Uh I apologize for being late. I was Mm -hmm. opening up the car doors of the carsophagus so that I could give another day to mummifying a rodent that is somewhere in the system. How is your morning? Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because you know what that reminds me of? Moderation. <laughs> Dude. Sorry. You I mean. had one task. Your one task was to pivot right. into moderation, and it was my rotting rodent in my <laughs> air conditioning system reminds you of moderation. <laughs> painted me into a corner with the carsophagus <laughs> there's there's no pivot from carsophagus i would maintain you could have said oh um so when does it smell the worst and i could have said well it depends oh it depends on how hot it is that was pretty good try again okay sorry i'm late i had to open up the car and let it air out i smell rodent <laughs> right once you I, start thinking about damn it damn it Inception. Now I think I smell rodent. Stop. I like something that you said a lot in the intro that I was supposed to give, and that was <laughs> that was it depends. It depends is the perfect colloquial phrase for describing moderation. I use it all the time. And I'll tell you what, most of the things that we encounter at the end of the day, if you ask someone, so do you think that holds? It's always going to be followed up by, well, it depends. So I think that is a perfect way to characterize what we should be talking about today. We can add it to our list of advanced statistical concepts that we've supported here on the podcast. So it depends. For uh, poking sticks, dance mm-hmm. with who brung you, whack-a-mole, intellectual punch in the face, throw open the barn doors digging bodies up from the front yard and burying them in the backyard, but the cops are still going to find them. This is really all just crap you say. I had not thought about that before. (laughs) So when you say we, but that's fine. That's right. I'm with you. I'm with with you. On on It Depends, I'm totally with you. I have a minor diatribe that I go on when I teach about this stuff. Whether it be in undergrad stat or the most advanced doctoral level class that I teach, Mm-hmm. My extraordinary frustration with the extent to which our field focuses on main effects. Mm-hmm. That is, is the treatment effective? Yes or no? Yep. And it's this up or down vote, and I have this new treatment, or there's some intervention in the schools, right? If you want an entertaining reading, I have a research methods class I teach, and there are a half dozen of articles going back and forth about the efficacy of DARE. Drug abuse resistance education. There you go. And it had political traction and was widely distributed in schools about 20 years ago. But more and more empirical evidence began mounting that it was not 
effective and that it was pushing out other effective programs. The point is, is so much of that discussion was, is DARE effective? Yes or no? Mm -hmm. And that's not an answerable question. It's for what type of child, in what kind of context, at what developmental status, is DARE effective or not? Or whatever else we're looking for. Are there gender differences? Are there race differences? What is the impact of a new curriculum within a classroom? Well, it depends. It depends on the skills of the teacher, on the socioeconomic resources of the school, of the parent and family home. It just drives me insane. I think we've set ourselves back half a century in some areas by posing these questions of, is it effective or not? Yes or no? Yeah. And I feel like we sort of got set up with our T-test kind of training. We're looking for a mean level difference. And at best, we ask, is there an interaction? And that's it, right? That, oh, look, it might work better for this group on the whole than this group. We don't think of moderation as much in terms of broader contexts. We don't think of it as much in terms of there being these, and this is my mental image, the environment is like a control panel with all these dials and knobs. And as we turn those dials and knobs, effects that we observe may well be changing and that some of those dials and knobs might be irrelevant, others might be relevant, but I just don't think that we view the world that way. And I think that's a huge mistake. And I think we're trying to recover from it methodologically and that we haven't done so. I agree halfway with you. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think that part of it can be traced to the focus on main effects in an ANOVA model. Although I find that a two-by-two ANOVA is a really nice way of pounding a nail into the concept of what an interaction is. And so a Mm two-group T-test, let's just super oversimplify, but a two-group T-test and there's some treatment and control. And you say, is there a difference in the sample means of the treatment group from the control group. Then we say, well, let's make it a two-by-two ANOVA and Mm -hmm. bring in biological sex. So we have boy and girl treatment and control. So we have our little two-by-two contingency table. And to introduce a two-way interaction, then we introduce differences in differences. Mm -hmm. Is the difference between treatment and control different for boys and girls? That's an interaction. Mm -hmm. So one is I feel like there's a kernel there that we could really hook people of to say, well, it depends. But the other one, Greg, is I'm more cynical about is I think main effects are just easier. They're just easier to think about. It's just a race. The bell rings, the gates open, and does your treatment cross the finish line or not? And I think it's just harder, not just analytically, to model and probe and plot these things, but it's just easier to say, am I right or not? And I think that's part of it too. You've already opened up a lot of cans of worms and I partly attribute it to rodent fumes. But what I thought I might do is pull back just to set the stage for moderation more broadly. And it's hard to do so without making at least a passing reference to Barron and Kenny back in 1986. They did a nice job of at least differentiating between some things that up to that point people (laughs) had been confusing but since that point people have been confusing right um (laughs) and that is that they tried to bring some distinction between mediators and moderators what i thought i might do is just start off with their definition of a moderator so now you're prepared (laughs) no one can pivot (laughs) from carsophagus 
How does Barron and Kenny define moderation? They say that in general terms, a moderator is a qualitative or quantitative variable that affects the direction and or strength of the relation between an independent or predictor variable and a dependent or criterion variable. I like that definition. I like it for a lot of reasons. I like that it talks about both qualitative and quantitative variables, first of all. And that ties into your ANOVA example, which started off with a little qualitative setup. So this is where I'm going to try and be a little bit careful. You had a variable that interacted with another variable. Mm -hmm. And the rest of their definition starts to put some qualifications on that. And that has to do with affecting the direction and or strength of the relation between an independent or predictor variable and a dependent or criterion variable. So one of the things I like to think about early on when I'm talking about moderation is the distinction between an interaction and moderation. For me, the term moderation carries with it more agency or deliberateness in its manipulation. So going back to your two by two example, do you think of that as interaction? Do you think about that as moderation or do you think about it as both? Jeez, I honestly have not thought about that. I use those as synonyms. In the example that you have, there's some particular outcome variable. You have a treatment that you're interested in assessing the effectiveness of. And in that case, I think you had a biological sex variable Mm -hmm. as part of it. We can assess whether or not there's an interaction between the biological sex variable and the treatment variable. And you learn something about that interaction. So now the question when you have that interaction is, what sentence do you use that has the word moderation in it? Oh, I see where you're trying to trick me. Well, as you well know, and this goes back, there's wonderful literature on this that goes back decades and decades. And indeed, one of my heroes is David Ragosa in his early Mm -hmm. work, and he made remarkable contributions to this. But when you have a two-variable product system, and it scales up to three or four or five-way interactions, but when you have a two-variable interaction, you can arbitrarily identify one as the focal predictor and one as the moderator. And I say arbitrary because they're symmetric, but I would say that there is empirical evidence to support a treatment effect and that the magnitude of this effect interacts with the biological sex of the child such that there is greater treatment salience for girls compared to boys. And that whole sentence could have been done the other way. Yeah, no, that's the symmetry. Right. And so for me, the wrinkle is that interaction is a mechanism that we can use to assess some theoretical moderation. But to me, that's all it is, is it's just a way. And it's not the only way that we might try to assess some theory about moderation. But prior to forming that interaction and conducting the test, we should have in our heads, if it's reasonable, which variable is actually moderating the independent-dependent variable relation that the others have. So for me, moderation involves a little bit more front-end than is there an interaction. I buy that because when I think on my own about these things, and you alluded to it earlier in your seamless transition to this topic, (laughs) is... It starts in the GLM, but the fingerprints of moderation are on every single thing we do. 
in Mm -hmm. data analysis and modeling and inference. I do see moderation as the broader conceptual issue at hand. And how I think about it goes back to what we talked about with Bayes, with Roy, and a little bit about the frequentist perspective that there exists a fixed parameter beyond the horizon. And our goal as data analysts is to get some sample estimate of that fixed parameter. Well, in moderation, I start thinking about, all right, is there one regression coefficient that holds for all people at all times across all contexts? Mm -hmm. Or are there conditional values of that? There's a regression coefficient for males and for females. Well, then you start cutting the bread thinner and it's like, all right, for females, is there a separate one for younger versus older? And then you do start moving toward a whole distribution of conditional effects of what is that regression coefficient as a function of these other characteristics. So I see that. I like that. I could be on board with distinguishing interaction from moderation. And moderation is a crazy hot topic out there in the funding world. Uh, I did pull up a couple of the funding mechanisms from the Institute of Education Sciences, where they will say for their exploration goal projects, for example, the exploration goal supports projects that will identify malleable factors associated with student education outcomes and or the factors and conditions that mediate or moderate that relationship. So they're very much interested in contextual factors. They even make a statement associated with another one of their funding goals, while not required, the analysis of moderators and mediators can strengthen your application. <laughs> right? So guess what appears in damn near every application that you see when you sit on those panels, right? But I think the idea that context matters is an awakening that is so long overdue. And the idea that we can identify not just those contextual factors, but ultimately what IES describes as the malleable ones, right? It's one thing to know that a treatment is different for kids from lower SES and higher SES. It's another thing to know what aspects you actually might have some control over as a researcher. I totally agree that that's where things should be headed. Sometimes I feel like funding priorities are just another laser pointer with the cat. Mm -hmm. You know, what can we put in an fMRI this week? Pineapples. Right. <laughs> we are calling for studies uh-huh. of pineapples in fMRI uh-huh. <laughs> uh, when we're going to present them crossword puzzles and see if pineapples can, you know, it's like, okay. But this one, I am 100% supportive of bringing context to bear because of just what we were talking about before is for what type of child in what type of setting who goes home to what type of family What can we do unique to that child that accelerates their rate of learning beyond what they would have done had we not had that intervention? A colloquial reinterpretation of Barron and Kenny is a mediator explains the relation between two variables. A moderator identifies under what condition a relation holds. The malleable part is huge. That's the whole thing Mm -hmm. of etiology. My background is developmental psychopathology. So individual variability and risk and protective factors in the development of children and adolescents for negative outcome behaviors. Mm -hmm. And we want to not only identify the underlying etiological mechanism, so that is what leads to what leads to what leads to what, but more importantly, what are the points in which we could intervene 
to manipulate the system to protect a child from the risk associated with parental psychopathology. We can't change the parent. We can't change the stress in the home. We can't change their family income. But could Mm -hmm. we provide coping skills training? Can we introduce a change to the system that cascades down the developmental process? I don't view context from a funding standpoint as a laser pointer. I think we should have done that 30 years ago. Absolutely. And the implications of this potentially involve even the tailoring of the treatments that we have, that under certain conditions, some treatments are more effective. Under other conditions, treatments might be less effective. That's done in medicine all the time. Right. But the idea is that the more you understand context, the better you can possibly intervene both in terms of timing and in terms of the nature of the interventions themselves. So I love this as an area for the potential for doing good. And there are a lot of different ways to get at this thing called moderation. And to be super clear, lots of people are doing really good work in this area. This just-in-time intervention, they're doing Mm -hmm. intensive longitudinal designs where they gather data on a day-to-day basis and adjust the treatment provision. So this is not a, oh my gosh, why hasn't anybody thought of this? Is there's Mm -hmm. some very powerful trials in the field doing very important studies into this. And so we just want to be clear, we're not saying the emperor has no clothes and we need to do this. It's just, can we think about this more broadly? There are a whole bunch of different ways that we can have even just to assess theories of moderation. And you started off the conversation with the really, I would say, about the simplest one of all, the two-by-two analysis of variance. And you nicely segued into the idea of having product terms within, for example, a regression model. What are some of the other ways that you think about trying to get at moderation? I mean, I would say every analytic method that we use has some way of doing this. Some explicitly think about it as moderation. Some, I think it's implicit within it, even though maybe we don't think about that so much. Mm -hmm. A lot of this multiplicative stuff in the regression line came out of testing the assumption of parallelism in ANCOVA. I mean, this stuff goes way back. So what was your ANOVA book, Greg? I I had Keppel. Because you took ANOVA from Fisher, right? I You're a little bit older than I am. Right. But yeah, Keppel was absolutely a very active and and good book. It was a good book. It almost drove me from the field, and I'm not exaggerating. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with Keppel. Keppel's a brilliant book, but it's all about Mm -hmm. sums of squares. And I just didn't get it. I was just like, why the hell are we doing this? I'm interested in child development, and why do I have an entire chapter on the decomposition of sums of squares? Mm -hmm. And computational formulas for doing it. And there's the (laughs) definitional formula, and there's the computational formula. But for those of you who are maybe 50 years younger than we are, there was ANOVA, you're comparing means, there's ANCOVA, where you have a continuous covariate, and you're controlling for some continuous predictor when you do your mean comparisons. And a fundamental assumption is the magnitude of the relation of the covariate on the dependent variable was assumed to be equal across the groups under study in the ANCOVA. So say you had a continuous measure of age and a treatment group and treatment and control. So that would be an ANCOVA. And it was assumed that 
whatever effect there was of age on the outcome, that was equal for the treatment and the control. And so it was called parallelism. And other people wrote about it, but Ragosa had some really nice work on saying, well, how do we not only test if those relations are not parallel, but that that becomes a research question itself, right? Because mm -hmm. then it becomes the it depends. What is the relation between age and the dependent variable? Well, it depends. Is it in the treatment group or is it in the control group? Because those lines are not parallel, Right, parallel is there's an equal effect, non-parallel is there's some different effect. The historical roots are fascinating, but it just scales up from there. In multi-level modeling, if we have a level one predictor, a level two predictor, there's a cross-level interaction. The effect of the child's predictor on the outcome in part varies on characteristics of the classroom within which they reside. In growth modeling, if we predict the slope mm -hmm. of change over time, there's an interaction between the time invariate covariate and individual variability and rate of change over time. In item response theory, there's different impact. That's a huge one. The way in which a test item operates depends in part on the characteristics of the test taker. You can generalize that. Last year, we had a fun episode on failing to not reject non-invariance. Well, a multiple group factor analysis. Mm -hmm. How I think about it, I think about it both to myself and when I try to teach this, is do you believe any given parameter, a factor loaded, a regression coefficient, a covariance, a residual variance, pick your favorite parameter. Do you mm -hmm. think that there's a single value of that that holds for everyone? Or do you think that there are different values that hold for different people that reflect different characteristics? And I think every analytic framework has some way of allowing those parameters to take on different values. And I think you're disingenuous if you don't say, I don't know if I don't know if it's no or yes to your question, but, <laughs> it, but, but if anybody thinks that the nature of a treatment effect really transcends all of these contexts, I think it's a very hard thing to swallow. Now, it might not differ in ways that matter, but it's very hard to imagine that whether it's treatment effects or other kinds of effects or relations in the model, it's very hard to imagine that those don't differ to some extent by context, right? This whole quest for some universal standard with regard to effects, et cetera, I think is ill-guided. Is that a word? Um, <laughs> it is now. <laughs> and, you know, you, you already touched on a lot of things. In fact, you pretty much just obliterated my agenda. There are a lot of different approaches. One is a multi-group strategy. Very simple. And when you talked about it in the context of ANOVA, it was looking at, as you said, a difference in the differences. I like that. And we can have much more complex models. And we wonder whether or not how those things relate differ as a function of some other group-related characteristic. So when we can identify a priori what that qualitative moderator might be, then multigroup models can be a terrific way to try to get at that. When our moderators start to become less qualitative and more quantitative, that's where things get really, really interesting. And I can't help but hear Roy in the background talking about essentially the idea of hyperparameterizing our effects in terms of these other variables. 
that's essentially what you were talking about when you mentioned your product terms in regression. The slope itself winds up being a function of this other variable that we might be brave enough to call a moderator and not just something that that interacts with it. So I love the idea that we might be moving to a system where we can actually start to understand these these fine-tuned kind of effects that context might have, not just one at a time even, but also all in concert with each other. I think that's potentially a very, very powerful direction for us to be going. I really like what you alluded to about that notion of it's hard to think about that you don't have some overall treatment effect. And I I forgot how you said it here in post-processing. I'll redo it that your clip (laughs) here. So here's where it'll go right here. Oh, Patrick's going to drop the clip right here as if. I'm the one editing this episode. I'm the one who has cleaned up 486 of his and so ums. Does he sound like he knows what he's talking about? Smoke and mirrors, people. Smoke and mirrors. Okay, so that's better. That's what you said. Jumping to a broader theoretical standpoint, I think our field has not benefited from a long history of hard science envy. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite books is Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Kuhn, and it's a brilliant book, and I'd highly, highly recommend it. One of the guiding goals for several centuries in astronomy and in physics and in biology is to try to find these universal constants, these established, fixed descriptors of the world that we live in. So an object falls 9.8 meters per second squared in a vacuum. Near the surface of the Earth. That's a really freaking good point. It's contextualized. That's right. I think before we get into even the mechanics, given your theoretical perspective of context, what design features can you introduce into your data collection that allows you to empirically evaluate these conditional effects in a meaningful and reliable way? Absolutely. To me, it's a key to external validity. To be able to generalize most broadly, I think you have to understand that the world out there is full of multiple contexts. And the more that you can study that within reason, right? You don't have to solve every problem on earth. I think that's a good faith effort to try to understand the world a lot better. Um, I understand the innate desire to be hunting for some, whether it's a universal constant or a universal process like E equals MC squared. I, I, I like simplicity. People, I think, generally like simplicity. But I think the reality is, especially in the social sciences, there's so much context that, that the world brings to people's behavior, people's attitudes. I think we absolutely have to be doing those kinds of things. So I'll bounce it back to you. If we conceptually get our head around the potential that an effect in which we are interested is not universal, as in part embedded Mm -hmm. in some context, then do all the different things that I stole from you by giving a laundry list of different kinds of models, are those just Mm -hmm. simply mechanisms for isolating those empirically? Well, I don't know exactly what you mean by mechanisms. I mean, they're, they're all different ways to try to get at them in different contexts, but they also often rely on very specific assumptions. And I'll give you a couple of examples. One is when we are asking a question as simple as does identifying as male or female or biological sex, does that moderate a particular treatment effect? 
The thing that we really have to think hard about is what is the actual mechanism for the moderation that's operating here? And oftentimes I think people will ask the question about moderation and they will use the variables that they have at hand. They will use variables that really might be proxies for other things, right? It might not be biological sex that's actually moderating it. It might be the experiences that come with identifying as male or female in our world. And these are not the same things. Right? I think that as much theory needs to be brought to bear on the nature of the moderating mechanism as everything else that goes on. I think it gets sloppy on the back end where you just, it's like when people throw in covariates, right? Well, let's just throw in a bunch of covariates. Same thing with moderate. Well, let's see if it's moderated by the, why? What's the rationale? What's the mechanism? I also think it gets a little bit sloppy when people have continuous moderators, right? Quantitative kinds of moderators, and they start throwing in interaction terms. An interaction term is a very specific type of moderation that it's that it's trying to get at. The idea that as you turn up the moderator knob, the slope between X and Y starts ratcheting up, click, 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 with each turn of the moderator knob, or starts going down with each click of the moderator knob. That's a very specific mechanism for moderation. What if it's the case that there's a whole range of the moderator where the XY relation is completely unaffected. It's not until, for example, you are below some poverty threshold before that relation is affected, or not until you're above a particular high school experience level until that relationship is affected. So I think there's a lot of thought that needs to be put into moderators, and people get really hand-wavy when they come to it, and they wind up using these proxy analyses that might not have anything to do with the actual moderating variable itself, or it might not have to do with the actual moderating mechanism itself. There are two huge things you raised, I think. And the first is that notion of proxy and mechanism. Mm-hmm. We need to think about moderation. We need to think about everything that we do in this field, but as making a modest contribution to the accumulation of knowledge as we progress and build as a science. And what I mean is go back to my simple two by two. So we have a difference between treatment and control that is different between boys and girls. So what we find empirically is girls respond better to the treatment than do boys. All right, so that's a two-by-two interaction. Sorry, there's a military helicopter going overhead. (laughs) Dang. We've uh, identified the road of snow. (laughs) So the treatment is more effective for girls than for boys. Well, the obvious question is then what you're talking about mechanism. Well, why? Mm -hmm. Why is it more effective? Is it the way that it was designed? Is it the way that it implemented? Is it the outcome that you're studying? And so it's a pebble in the pile to say, Mm -hmm. all right, the treatment is not universally effective. It depends. It depends on the biological sex of the child. So then the next brick that we pick up is to say, well, why is that? And so we can continue to build. So I like the mechanism part. I like the proxy part because I have a friend who does gender studies research. And once she told me her career goal is to make the binary measure of biological sex irrelevant in the model to make it where we don't need that anymore. And her rationale was, it's because that's a a ridiculous variable of zero and one, but it captures a hundred other things that it represents. Mm -hmm. And her goal was just one by one to tick those off. 
zero one is just a proxy for all these other mediating and moderating mechanisms. So I very much like that proxy element. And then the final one is I like your knob where it turns up the regression, it turns down. I like that. The term you sometimes get is it's bilinear. It's symmetric. Mm -hmm. It's just a, a volume. The amplifier that goes to 11, right? Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> You know what we use on stage, but it's very, very special because if you can see, yeah, the numbers all go to eleven. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not ten. You see, what we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Uh, put it up to 11. eleven. Exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make ten louder and make ten be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. Spinal Tap. If you haven't seen that, add it to your list. Brilliant. There's a fine line between stupid and, and clever. But there's some interesting work, and Dan Bauer has his fingerprints on this, of those indirect uses of mixture models. We had Sir Mixture a lot last season and <laughs> talking about, about mixture models. And there were direct effects where you try to discover truth. And there are indirect effects where you use mixture models as a handy way to approximate complex nonlinear relations. Well, there's some mm -hmm. promising ground to be tread there in terms of using mixture models to estimate nonlinear interactions that are just as you described. Maybe there's a range where there's no relation between X and Y as a function of Z, yet at some critical mass of Z, then that relation comes on board, where you can't do that in a bilinear because, as you said, you're just turning the volume up and down. But mm -hmm. you can approximate a nonlinear where, you know, across two-thirds of the level of Z, there's no effect. But in the upper third, then it comes online in some nonlinear way. So lots of very, very cool stuff to be done here. That's his, his MILF. What's it called? MILF model? Oh, it's, it's... No, 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 it's not. Coming up on the season finale of MILF Island. We'll throw an N in there. Um, an, uh -huh. A MANOLFA, M-N-L-F-A, okay. Moderated Nonlinear Factor Analysis. Actually, no, that is not, it's not that what either. applies here. Okay. This is can you extract multiple components in a mixture to approximate mm -hmm. a nonlinear relation? I think mm -hmm. it was with Joe Lynn Peck, and I apologize, there's another co-author on it. Peck, Lasardo, and Bauer, 2011, Confidence Intervals for a Semi-Parametric Approach to Modeling Nonlinear Relations Among Latent Variables in Structural Equation Modeling Journal. Yep. They introduce a general method for that, and it can be scaled up and down for different applications. I guess I'm better appreciating your interaction versus moderation is if you bring in a multiplicative cross product into a regression model, you are hooking yourself to the bilinear relation, the volume control knob. Yep. That's the classic when people think about interactions. It's Ragosa's pick a point. High, medium, low, a standard yep. deviation above, a standard deviation below. I really do believe a lot of controversial findings, I'm using air quotes that only you can see, mm -hmm. are because people probe interactions outside of the range of the data that they observe. And so you mm -hmm. have some continuous predictor Z and you automatically probe at plus or minus one standard deviation, where well, you don't know if you actually have cases at one mm -hmm. standard deviation above or one standard deviation below. 
and you're plotting a symmetric distribution when your distribution of your Z predictor may not be symmetric at all. I think it's a horrible way to do it. I think it's really incumbent upon the researcher who thinks that there might be a moderating process to actually articulate why they think there is a process and what the nature of the process is. Why would you expect that if you just keep turning the family SES knob that things are going to continue to change in a particular way? I think there's a lot of things that are operating, and some of the things that we do, like using simple product terms, really might be obfuscating our ability to detect these kinds of really important relations or to try to understand those relations. And I think that it's even further made a mess of because there's measurement error in our moderators, too. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And even if you think about a simple product model, if your X variable is measured with error and your moderator variable is measured with error, well, guess what? The product is going to suck. And your power to detect some kind of slope associated with that product term is going to go down the toilet. That's a huge problem for understanding moderation. You know, for people who do studies where they say, well, we didn't find any evidence of moderation. Well, look at your moderator. Duh, of course you didn't because your moderator sucks in terms of how it's measured. So I think we have to be especially mindful of the quality of the moderators that we have and invoke the full latent variable machinery that we have at our disposal Mm. to try to get the most out of our moderators as well. Otherwise, we're not even going to be able to understand these contextual effects. That's a great point. And there's a double poke in the eye. So we know that measurement error attenuates on average. Measurement error attenuates regression coefficients when using manifest variables. And it is compounded when we take the product of two variables, each of which are flawed. But the thing is, is even if you don't have the unreliability, very often your effect sizes are terribly small. Oh, yeah. And so you have very low power anyway. And I've been in positions where you get a squared semi-partial for a product term of 0.01. Yeah. You know, so 1%. Yet, I still believe that is a important, meaningful modifier to the equation. Because if you think about it, it all goes back to that difference in differences, right? So you have a difference in treatment, a difference in gender, and then is the difference different? Often very important effects are tiny, tiny, tiny effect sizes. And that introduces problems both in just usual statistical power, but also trying to convince a reader that a squared semi-partial of 1% should be paid attention to. Yeah, and I, I think something worth underscoring here is that if you want to study moderation, you really have to plan for it thoughtfully, right? We've already said in terms of the mechanism and in terms of the nature of the proxy variable But how big is that moderating effect going to be? And a way to think about it in standardized terms, let's imagine that you have an XY relation and that the beta weight of it, this won't be exact, but it might be useful. Imagine the beta weight in one group is a 0.5 and the beta weight in another group is a 0.6. What sample size do you need to detect that initial 0.5? All right. What sample size do you need to detect the 0.6 in the other group? Well, guess what? The sample size you need to detect the difference between that 0.5 and that 0.6 is way, way bigger. So this idea of planning for these effects, and you determine what is the magnitude of an important effect, whether it's in terms of a squared semi-partial, as you described, or in terms of a difference between raw slopes or standardized slopes, however you prefer to operationalize it, 
This is something that's already greatly underpowered to begin with. Throw measurement error in there, and you're going to need even a lot more subjects to be able to detect it. So the whole study of moderation is something that takes a lot of thinking up front, not some casual back-end exploration where let's just throw some variables in there and see what's moderating what. You have very little chance of finding anything in that way. And then on top of that, this is like a pile-on, I know, but we talked, I don't know, a couple episodes ago, but it came up. Oh, I, I think it was in Pop Quiz when you so rudely threw me suppression. And we <laughs> talked a little bit about how never make a decision based on a bivariate mm-hmm. correlation is another thing that drives me insane when I'm on a student committee is they will have a main effects only model. And I will ask, well, did you consider higher order interactions? And they respond, no, I'm not interested in those. <laughs> and a faculty member pulled me aside after a meeting once mm-hmm. to say, maybe maybe you should talk to him and explain what you meant by your response mm-hmm. to that. I said, I cannot plumb the depths to which I do not care what you are or are not interested in. I said, if there's an analytic conditional relation, you need to build that in. Now, I am willing to admit, following Uh years of therapy, some people also refer to that as marriage, is Mm -hmm. I I need to evaluate the things that I say in the context Mm -hmm. that I say them. And I am willing to recognize (laughs) that that may have been a comment best kept to myself But take your example of it's 0.5 in one group and 0.6 in another group. And let's just say it's 0.3 in one group and negative 0.3 in the other group. You Mm -hmm. have no main effect. If you don't take that multiplicative interaction, the relation between X and Y is zero. And you say there is no effect of gender. And you say, well, there's no overall effect, but there's a huge effect. Your example is 0.5 and 0.6 and the difference is 0.1. 0.3 and negative 0.3, the difference is 0.6. It's a huge effect. But you don't know that if you didn't incorporate that into your model. Exactly right. Main effects should not be a gateway to understanding interactions. They should not be something that tell you that there's nothing to see here. uh, Because there might be tremendous things to see here. That's another wonderful public service announcement. But here's the other problem. These higher order interactions can be highly susceptible to outlying observations. And they don't even have to be like obscene outliers. Mm -hmm. But if you're above the mean on X and above the mean on Z and above the mean on, I'm out of letters, A, and you multiply A by X by Z, you zoom away from the centroid and suddenly have honking leverage that one or two observations can completely drive a three-way interaction. So what this is, is you've just got to be really freaking careful. If you step back, you've got to think about these things theoretically. Mm -hmm. Do I believe that this is some kind of universal constant, or do I believe it's modified by context? Second, you've got to design a study in a way that allows you the information to test these in a meaningful and reliable and valid way. And then third, you have to pay attention to the omission of product terms that may be meaningful, but also not going product terms on spring break Mm -hmm. where you have three or four or five level interactions 
and you keep the ones that are significant and drop the ones that are not, as we really can't do our science more disservice than that. So there have been a lot of methodological advances that could be used in service of this, indirectly or directly. If you think about, for example, classification and regression tree types of models, where I think their job is sort of to look for these combinations of things where you're not thinking about things in terms of bilinear relations. You're literally just asking, hey, above here, below here, above here, below here, homing in on these different combinations of variables. What do you think about those as the potential for trying to get at moderation? Oh, absolutely. Some of the early developments in mixture modeling was this Mm -hmm. very issue, is Jedediah was publishing in marketing and looking for different marketing segmentation. How do you target advertisement and marketing to different segments of Mm -hmm. the population? I think a lot of those data-driven and machine learning-like approaches are doing this very thing. Are there patterns, are there relations that are unique to a particular subgroup or constellation of variables, right? It's kind of hard to Mm -hmm. think about because it can work in subgroups, but it can also work in, you can have a single homogeneous population, but that there are different relations among the different unique combinations of the predictor variables. For me, it screams potential. You know, there's a part of me that is still cautious in the same way that I'm cautious about forward selection kinds of procedures in regression, right? That you worry that someone will get nominated for your moderation model that wouldn't have made the cut in another sample. So I certainly want cross-validation, all of those good kinds of things. But to the extent that it's actually able to identify these different cocktails of independent variables... It's cocktails of moderators that really set different contexts for whether it's marketing, as you talked about, or behavior change. Um, I've interacted quite extensively with folks in schools of public health around trying to identify combinations of background information and malleable characteristics for changing vaccination behavior, for example, around the flu vaccine and other types of vaccines. So I think the potential is there as long as we're very careful to try to identify things that in the end uh, are themselves replicable. But there's other stuff too, right? There are methods that you have alluded to multiple times where you're actually embedding within the parameters themselves, the characteristics, the contextual elements that might be moderating those parameters, right? Yeah. So for example, as you highlighted the MILF model, um, which is... Uh, So Bauer, 2009 psych methods, Bauer and Hussong, he proposed a method. And the terminology is a little unfortunate because it was specific to the model that he was presenting, which was a moderated nonlinear factor model. And so there were Mm -hmm. two issues there. There was the nonlinear because he had discrete items. And the factor analysis was he was doing a multiple indicator latent factor. So it was a moderated nonlinear factor analysis. And there's a lot of misunderstanding, I think, in the literature because people say, oh, well, I can't use that because I don't have a factor Mm -hmm. model. Well, it turns out you can generalize his approach across any analytic framework. And he Mm -hmm. has a follow-up paper in Psych Methods in 2017 that generalizes that to some other settings. And I think even further work could be done. But picture in your mind's eye, this is a colloquial description of what that approach is doing. Picture in your mind's eye that you have some regression model 
and that you have a regression coefficient linking some predictor to some outcome. Well, his approach and what I've in a couple of follow-up papers I've written about is I, I the term I use is called parameter moderation. So you're moderating the parameter itself is we can use existing technologies that are in any SEM package. This is no, we don't have to do some Bayesian thing. We don't have to wake up uh, Roy again. He's we could. It's still well, it's <laughs> we seven o'clock is we can give him <laughs> it's a call. late for him. Um, we don't have to do any of that. It's available in any major software package, but we can write a deterministic equation for any parameter in our model to vary as a function of any set of covariates in our model. And I think this is hugely important because what we can start thinking about is this fine-tuning of parameters. All right, so is there, let's call the regression coefficient gamma. If it's a main effect, it's gamma. That's it. Gamma, gamma, mm-hmm. gamma, gamma, gamma. It's just gamma. It's 0.5. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. now we're back with Roz at the ticket counter. I'm watching you, Wazowski. And mm-hmm. you walk up and you say, I self-identify as a male. I'm Caucasian. I'm 55 years of age. I went to public schools and I have a rotting animal that lives in my air conditioning system. <laughs> And Roz says, your gamma is 0.863. So it's not 0.5, and it's not slowly going up or down by the extent to which my rodent is rotting in my car. Mm -hmm. It's a unique value associated with that set of covariates. Any model you can think of, we can build these kinds of relations in. And I personally think that's where we need to start moving as a field to say, all right, think about each parameter you have in the model. Do you believe there to be just a single value that holds for everyone? Or do we need to fine tune that with respect to context and characteristics? All right, listeners, I've got a pop quiz for you. Differentiate ideographic and nomothetic. Go. All right, if you remember my mnemonic, we've established early on that I don't really know anything about quantitative methods. I just have mnemonics. Ideographic is idiot. Nomothetic is no more. I don't want any more. We really can pin these concepts here. If there is a single gamma that holds for everyone, that's a nomothetic kind of relation. All right, go ahead. So you have a single gamma that exists. That's more of a nomothetic. Is that is a universal, it doesn't matter any characteristic of the individual or the context within which they're embedded, gamma is 0.5. You can go to the opposite end of the continuum. And some people have argued this is in the mid-2000s, Peter Molinar has a very engaging discussion of putting the individual back in psychology. It's some kind of manifesto uh, is in the title. And he argues for the possibility that every individual has their own parameter. Mm -hmm. Where I argue, and I actually have a response to that in the special issue where I made this argument, is that we want to navigate the bounds between ideographic and nomothetic. And that is, okay, there's not one gamma that holds for everybody, and there's not an individual gamma that holds for every single person. It goes back to what you alluded to in external validity, the extent to which we can generalize our findings across person, place, and time. 
we need to find that middle area to say, okay, I don't believe there's some 9.8 meters per second squared in a vacuum on the surface of the earth. Thank you. Just to beat you to the punch on that one. (laughs) To say, can we fine tune these in a way that allows us to make inferences to a broader population of individuals that are similar in characteristics to those we studied here. And I think the MILF model is a way of doing that. (laughs) So in my opinion, we have all the tools we need to empirically and numerically estimate these kinds of conditional effects and to make reliable, valid inferences about these effects in our models. I think you hit the nail on the head early in this discussion. The bigger issue at hand is thinking about these from a broader perspective, thinking about these from a theoretical perspective and a design. So walk us out with that. If you had a call to arms in moderation in the next decade. While Zenny speaks that thought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. What would that be? Well, you set that up by saying it's not really a methodological call to arms in the sense of the machinery, that we have the machinery. And I would agree with you that the machinery is in place. That doesn't mean it won't be refined in terms of developments, whether it's in the regression tree kind of space or modifications to the models that you're talking about. Those will still continue. But I think the hard thinking is really just pulling back to the planning that you're going to do for the study. And the planning that you do for your studies involves as full an understanding of the moderating processes that you think are operating. What are the key moderators? Do you actually have those moderators or do you only have proxies of those moderators? That speaks to measurement error. What is the actual nature of the moderating mechanism? Is it something that works in a bilinear way that you describe or is it something that works maybe in a more punctuated kind of way? So there are a lot of different ways to think about that. And I think people have to think about that. When someone comes into my office and says, I think this moderates that, and then I ask them how, right? The person has done no thinking around the nature of that. Well, to me, that's absolutely critical, right? Does the moderation kick in above this income, or is it just that rheostat knob that you turn up? These go to 11. Tell me about that. You have to have as much theory going into that as you do about the theory that brought those variables to the table initially. And then you also have to be able to plan the study to be able to detect these kinds of relations. Most of the funding-related literature frames moderation in a very exploratory way, like, you know, we're interested in having you explore potential moderators and all that. Well, almost no study is really powered to do that. You might just happen to have a little bit of power to find something. But if you have done your homework understanding the nature of the mechanism, understanding the extent to which you have actually measured what you care about carefully, then all the planning up front needs to be involved in terms of, okay, so now how are you going to design a study to be able to detect that, to understand those kinds of things? And that, to me, is what needs to be happening. That's what has to happen in practice. Yes, there will be methodological developments, but I think the onus falls on the substantive researcher to do the hard thinking about what's actually going on when they want to use moderation as their focus. 
One thing that I would emphasize is something that you said and just doubling down on it is moderation is not mechanism. To say that there's a gender difference in treatment is not saying why that is. And so to think about these as building blocks, if you have a treatment effect and it's more salient for girls and boys, then you got to fill up your coffee, roll back your sleeves and figure out why is that. Mm-hmm. And not only to understand it from a scientific method, but when we understand that ideological mechanism, can we enhance the treatment for boys as well if we understand that? I would charge the listeners with, if anyone out there has any suggestions for how I can get the rotted rodent out of my air conditioning system, (laughs) your task this week is to tell me what to do. And that would help to moderate the quality of life that you and your family are currently experiencing. That I am experiencing because I'm the only (laughs) one who will ride in that car. (laughs) The carsophagus. The carsophagus. (laughs) So on that note, we open with the carsophagus and we close Mm -hmm. with the carsophagus. Thank you, everyone, for your Mm -hmm. electrons and for your attention. And as always, we really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Hey, couponers, don't forget to tell your friends to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they get their less exciting true crime podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a text or voice message. And remember, you can get Quantitude merch on Redbubble.com, where 100% of the proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help students in low-income schools to get remote access during these challenging times. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast whose name is actually an anagram of quaint duet, which seems a lot nicer than tad unquiet. Today's episode was sponsored by Jackknifing, super boring but sounds so edgy and dangerous, and by Ordinarily Squares, still hoping one day to be promoted to Extraordinarily Squares. And finally by Promax, the factor rotation method with the name most likely to be confused with a brand of condom. This is most definitely not NPR. This goes out to all my new friends here at Club Karaoke Manila. Another picture of Limeritas for my friends. You are my fire. The one desire, believe when I say I want it that way. Another one? I love you guys. She had them apple bottom jeans, boots with the fur. The whole club was looking at her. She hit the floor. Next thing you know, Shorty got low, 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 low.